This is Talking Ears, where music creators get to tell their story of sound and hearing. My name is Frank Wardinger. This episode's guest is Michael Lawrence. He's the co-host of the Signal to Noise podcast and a technical editor at Pro Sound Web and Live Sound International. He's also an audio and system engineer and senior instructor at Rational Acoustics. Michael joined me to talk about live music production and safety, and we get pretty technical on this one. Throughout this episode, we'll be hearing music by Talking Years producer Juan Vazquez and his band The Absolute Threshold. There's this argument that says, well, people chose to go to a show and they chose to expose themselves to this. And the reality is that's a cop-out because it is not informed consent. Mm -hmm. If they thought there was a non-trivial possibility that rigging would fall and kill them, they wouldn't stand in the front row like that. So we as professionals are the custodians of this because the audience does not understand to the levels that we as professionals understand that there is a risk to their well-being. And so we we become their their caretakers and their advocates. So it, I really don't buy this argument that they, well, they chose to expose themselves to a lot of sound. If they knew what I knew about sound exposure, you, you can't assume that they would be okay with that still. Completely. You know, I think that's a, that's a part of it that that we don't talk about enough. Like many people in audio, I wanted to be a musician. You know, my my mm-hmm. formal college education is is a music school education. I went to Berkeley. Like everybody there, you know, a lot of people come out of Berkeley and go into production or go into recording or going to you know something that's related to being a rock star, but is not directly being a rock star. I mean, a lot of people obviously do become successful musicians, but um, I think for me, I remember when I was fourteen. My older cousin and I were at school and he was talking to the chorus teacher and he, I have the hindsight now to realize what was happening is that he had committed to run the lights for the talent show and then he decided he didn't want to do it. Uh And so he's like, hey, maybe Michael can do it. And I thought I was winning a lottery. I thought I was getting away with something. I was like, that's a thing They let you do that. I didn't know that a student would be allowed to do that. Right. And I thought that was cool. (laughs) Surely an adult should be in charge of this. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) I didn't even realize that that was an option for somebody who was 14 years old is to be allowed to use this equipment. And then like a year or two after Berkeley, I was with a couple different acts and, you know, toured nationally with a couple different artists. And then I kind of was like, this sucks. You have to sell enough t-shirts to pay for your hotel room. And then you get like, I just, that's not, it's so glamorized and it's a lousy lifestyle and you tour for six months and you still break even. It's like, I don't want to do that anymore. So um, then I realized that you could actually be profitable if you did audio well. So that was it, you know? When you were at Berkeley, because you mentioned that you wanted to do music, wanted to play music. Do you write your own music? Do you record? Do you? I was a, I was a songwriting, a studying songwriting. Oh, cool. Uh, and piano. Um, even though I don't really play that much these days, actually, I got myself a V kit after tour. That's kind of been my. Oh yeah. Uh, I've been playing drums. That's pretty fun, you know. Nice. But um, yeah, playing music has not been a part of my life for a long time per se, like playing an instrument, but I, you know, obviously the, everything that I learned from that, 
um, it's been super beneficial for my job. So I don't, I don't consider it like a waste or something like that, you know? Of course. And, and, you know, I, I heard you mention this earlier and I've said the same thing is like when you're mixing live, you need to understand what I might be missing. Like being a musician, you have a better connection to, to what they're doing. It's not just a technical experience. Yeah. And I mean, you know, my job is I need to talk to artists mm-hmm. on occasion, right? Like I remember doing, I did a production of West Side Story and there's this really nice kind of diminished chord at the end of G officer Krupke. And there was four part harmony on it. And I was just, there was one guy I couldn't find him. Cause you got, you know, in theater, you have nine mics open and I'm like, I need to find that one. Who's got, you know, so I went to the music director and I was kind of talking with him and I was like, who is singing, who's singing the seventh of that sharp or diminished chord. And he looked at me cause he was not expecting the sound engineer to come up to him and talk about the sharp four diminished chord. Yeah. So, and then he treated me differently after that. Because he knew that I understood what he was doing. I did a an opera last summer. When you're reinforcing an orchestra, the orchestra is like backstage. So it needs to sound very natural out front. And I am positive the reason I got the call to do that gig is because they knew I was a musician, had played in an orchestra, and had conducted an orchestra, and understood how an orchestra works and sounds and how the instruments are laid out. Like You need to understand those things, I think, to make it sound as natural as they wanted it to sound. Um because you need to know what you're not hearing or what you're hearing too much of. The balance needs to be right. Yeah, for sure. And the the texture of it. I mean, there's a lot of ways to make an orchestra sound artificial. We just did. It was funny. We were out at Coachella a couple of weeks ago doing Danny Elfman. So when you take, oh, so it was Danny Elfman and it's a full orchestra full of Warner Brothers session players and a choir. And then there's like a rock band. But when you, we did, you know, the Batman theme and Nightmare Before Christmas and taking an orchestra and piping it through a huge line array in the middle of the desert is, you know, that is not a circumstance that you want to listen to an orchestra in. It's it's the least you know it's the least natural framing of an orchestra, like cramming it yeah. through a big line array. Um, so we did a lot of a lot of work trying to make that sound natural, and I'm happy with where we got it. It sounded like someone was playing the soundtrack when we were done, but but it's not easy to get it to a point where it just sounds like a loud orchestra. It doesn't sound like an orchestra coming out of a PA. Yeah, and that I think speaks to a lot of. I don't know if you find this with the sound engineers you work with, but I find that there's kind of two camps of live engineers. There's the people who got into mixing live front of house, especially um, because they like that, like to be the captain of the ship. They like to be the, the, the person who's like deciding like how, what, what comes and what stays. Yeah, yeah, and the, what, uh, the gatekeeper. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, and I personally, I mean, I kind of enjoyed that too when I did live. It's just, I get to choose how loud this solo is. I get to choose right. how big these drums are. But then there's the other person who goes to it saying like, if I do my job right, you sit back and think the CD's playing. Like you don't know how much work I put into it. it it's yeah. more kind of like the subtle. You know what I love about that? So like, I mean, primarily I'm a systems engineer. So when the mix engineer gives you their stereo two track, here's my left, right. Now it's mine. And I'm responsible for getting that to the, to the ears of every audience member. And so my job, it has nothing to do with the mix and it has a lot to do with making sure the mix is, is being faithfully transmitted everywhere. So it has to sound like this in the front row. It has to sound like this in the back row. So, so uniformity of coverage mm-hmm. is my gig. And that is a job that people don't even understand exists. No mm-hmm. one thinks about that when they go to a show. The average audience member buys a ticket and they sit in that seat and they go, this is my environment for the next few hours. And they don't give any thought to the fact that it might sound different in a different seat. But that's my whole gig. So, 
uh, we have a colleague who calls it the waveform delivery service. That's what, you know what I mean? Like I am not editorializing. Um, I mean, we're literally, I mean, smart is designed to be able to tell you exactly how faithful it is when it comes out of the PA compared to what came out of the console. That's, that's, that's what it's used for. And so when you're like, yeah, we have a 10,000 seat arena here and every seat is, is plus or minus two DB from mix. Like that is such a rewarding thing. I think if you're the type of person who understands that challenge and you're like, yeah, we got it. That's, you know, that's, we're like approaching the theoretical limits of how uniform this can be, you know, and like, that's great. And <laughs> it's not, you don't get a pat on the back as a systems engineer. You didn't, right, you didn't right, ride right. that guitar solo. You know, you don't, you don't talk to the band about the mix. Like you just, it's, it's a very not a limelight position. Yeah. And how much, how much do you find that that's appreciated now? Cause it, it wasn't a job 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I mean, so acoustics brings out like the first commercial line array in 1992, right? So, so that's the first time when these conversations about uniformity actually can be somewhat meaningful in a way that we have the ability to make it plus or minus three dB front to back. Like before that, we just, you know, it was really hard to do that and it's gotten easier. And now we have such amazing tools now that the fact that the technology exists that we can do that now means that that job becomes more meaningful. Um, it's not, you know, 1980 where you just stack up as many speakers as you can get on the stage and you just steamroll the people in the front so you can get to the back. You know, think about, like, look at some pictures of like, you know, Woodstock. Yeah. You know, um, that's what it was. And so really only in the last decade or so have we really had such a high level of tools that we can realistically say we want it to be plus or minus three dB in every seat in this arena and you can actually do it. Um, doesn't mean it's easy and it doesn't mean that most shows accomplish it, but it means that if, if the bands, you know, I'm lucky. I, I work for a handful of artists that understand the benefit of that and yeah. will pay, will pay it, pay for it to happen. And that means more loudspeakers and, you know, it's not a passive process. You have to make mm-hmm. some decisions and get, get the right tools and all that. But yeah, I, it, I think YouTube has a lot to do with this. Interesting. Because there's what, eight, nine, 10,000 seats in the arena. But they're going to get millions of views on YouTube from all the people yeah. that hold those phones up, and those videos have to sound good. And you don't know where that fan's going to sit that's going to hold the phone up. Interesting. So, so anyone in any seat can put a shitty sounding video of your band on YouTube. Interesting. And the only way to prevent that is to make it sound good in every seat. Um, so I want to talk about that some more because the idea of consistency is, as a sound engineer, it's an obvious, right? It's like, well, what I mix here, mm-hmm. I want everybody to hear that. Exactly. Right? But as a, as a audience member, yes, maybe they can understand kind of there's an aesthetic reason. I want this to sound like the show that I paid for. Can you talk a little bit about what that does for the actual exposure then for an individual who's sitting there? Like, right. what's the difference then that you can't get if you're not consistent? So besides the creative aspect, which is exactly what you said, which is the mix engineers are making these decisions about the tonality of of the guitar or the overall level of the show or the balance of these elements. If you have a sound system that produces a different response in every seat, those decisions are, are swamped, right? So, so in order for the mixing decisions to be meaningful, we need a system that's actually going to be uniform. But from an exposure standpoint, we typically, the only real place that we can put a measurement mic during the show that's not going to get like stolen or broken is, is typically at front of house mix position. So that's where we're, we're measuring SPL and that's where we're measuring, you know, all of our audio metrics that we look at as the show's happening. So that is where the decision about how loud should this be is mm-hmm. being made, right? If you have a system that is six dB louder in the front row, you have four times the exposure hazard for those people in the front row. And so 
part of what we're talking about here is there is some sort of ethical uh, conversation that, that comes as a part of this, which is even though you have a, a mix engineer who let's say they're being very responsible and they're being, they're doing their due diligence and they're looking at their levels and they're keeping an eye on their exposure and they go, yep, you know, this is a reasonable level, reasonable level plus 60 dB might not be so reasonable. Right. Mm-hmm. So paying attention to how much louder our system gets towards the front of the room. Um, it's going to get somewhat louder. That's just typically the physics of, of these things. But if we can have it be plus two or plus three instead of plus six or plus eight, you're making some really, really substantial gains there in terms of reducing that exposure risk. I mean, as, as you know, 3dB is a factor of two with, when you're talking about NIOSH exposure. So just taking, taking a couple dB off is a big gain from a health and safety standpoint. Huge. Yeah, I'd call it the edges of the system, the, the back row and, and the very front row, those people that are right next to the front fills, those types of things. The first couple rows are where you have that sort of outsized risk for exposure. Safety is a really interesting thing because we've got this idea that, you know, the show must go on. And sometimes you're like, well, just, you just got to make it work. And it's, it's an unpopular position to say, wait, this is a bad idea. We should stop. And when you look at, you know, the, the Sugarland stage collapse, for example, yeah. Indiana State Ferry, when you look at these disasters, it's never a bolt fell out and everything collapsed. It's always like seven people in a row mm-hmm. all should have said stop and didn't. Or someone said stop and they were ignored. So, so you get these chains of irresponsible decisions that, that all contribute to these things. And with audio, it's really tricky because rigging, you know, it's easy to, if you're a trained rigger, you can look at something and say that structure's not safe. That rigging point's not safe. And there's an acute danger there, which is it's going to fall. Um, when you have an audio situation that's not safe, it's not necessarily an acute danger. It might be mm-hmm. a decade before these problems become manifested in a way that we, we pay attention to them. Um, so I think it's, it's sort of been dismissed in a lot of ways when the conversation turns to safety, audio goes right to the bottom of the list because pyro is acute and electricity is acute and staging structure, you know, not collapsing. So go like, Oh, I might, you know, I might have difficulty hearing in five years. Like p- that hasn't been taken as seriously for that reason. And we can't see, sound exposure in the same way that we can see these other issues. You're operating a system that has the ability to hurt people, whether that's rigging system or an electrical system or a pyro system. And, you know, the, the audience doesn't go to the show with a hard hat on mm-hmm. because they think the rigging might fall. But they do go to a show with earplugs in their pocket yeah. because they think that it might be dangerous. And so we've really been pretty irresponsible as an industry that we've created a situation where the default supposition of an audience member is that it's going to be unsafe slash uncomfortable. And I think that sucks. Overwhelmingly, the majority of the people who are mixing shows professionally do care about level. They do care about sound exposure for themselves and for the audience and for the crew and for the other, you know, the artists. And that's really the most important part. So where we were able to come in, you know, with rational acoustics and also some we're doing with, with our community at Signal and Noise is to say, okay, you care about this. Here's some information. Because as you know, um, 
there is not a ton of information out there for that's packaged for for people who mix concerts who aren't you know going to audiology school. They care about it. They want to know. They want to understand it. They want to make responsible decisions. So for a while, it was just like, yeah, but how? Where can I learn about this? And mm-hmm. so a lot of the work that we've been doing at Rational Acoustics is to first of all educate ourselves about it, but also repackage that stuff in a way that it's accessible to somebody's mixing shows. That's sort of been compounded by the fact that our industry has no formal, you can just be like, I'm an audio engineer and now you are right. (laughs) And even, I mean, I went to, I went to undergrad for audio engineering for production. I was running a stage. I bought one of those like 300 packs of earplugs and we'll get to why this is to your point, a problem. Actually, I just bought one of those big earplug dispensers stuck in front of the sound booth. Right. And said for your plugs. And then I kept mixing the shows because never once did anybody say, we should probably bring a sound level meter in here or uh-huh. what's the level or the question was always, is that bass loud enough? Is the, is that snare cracking enough? Is, can I, is, can I hear the vocals from you know the other half of the room? But to, to your point there, I thought I was doing the right thing as an uninformed sound engineer, putting earplugs in the room, Right. And it took me understanding from people like you that what we're actually doing, it's a lagging problem, right? A concert's got too loud because we got more technology. And then we got the ability to to have bigger and better amps that can just handle this stuff and bigger and better speakers. And then we just went, oh, wait, now they're too loud. We Now everybody needs an earplug. And now hopefully we're getting to the next stage of evolution where the concerts can pull back just a little bit to the point where people bring the earplugs and go, huh, I don't need it tonight. Right. That's and then eventually, hopefully, people, you know, we don't need to bring earplugs. And let's, I mean, let's be clear: if you're concert goer, bringing earplugs is a absolutely responsible thing to do. You're protecting sure. yourself. So, 100. percent You know, people say, "Well, why do shows have to be that loud?" And for a while, it was it was because we didn't have the technology that we do now. And if you want to get to the back, it has to just be really loud in the front because it's just a big stack of speakers, you know. But once we started flying, the the line array was was a major development. The other thing is. For a while, the sound system was kind of a golf cart and it just, you would put the pedal down and just, it would go as fast as it could. And there are things that happen to a sound system when it's working to its limit, the distortion, the compression, mm-hmm. the multi. So for a while, it was pushed into the system until it sounded good. And so that's where a lot of the sound of the PA comes from is it used to be a major factor. And in 2022, a modern large format arena system will not limit until you're driving the audience out of them. Yeah. So you cannot rely on the PA to editorialize your sound in a pleasing way anymore. So mm. we're doing a lot of work to say, well, do that in the console. You have a distortion plugin, you have a tube plugin, you have a multi, what, you know, all this stuff that, that the PA would do, have it be like that in your board mix. And then you play it into a PA that's designed to be linear and then you're good. So that, so that's part of it is changing the way that we think about the role of the sound system. It's like any industry, really. As it matures, you start going, all right, well, let's talk about safety now. Yeah. You know, um, and so we're sort of at that turning point right now. And, and it's working on smart is such a, pr- a privileged, interesting position because this is a tool that is very, very widespread in use in these environments anyway. So mm-hmm. when we said, Hey, we can do sound exposure now. Um, we can do all of these different ways that we would measure sound level. We did not have to try to, it wasn't like I went on Shark Tank and said, Hey, I made a product. That's for people mm-hmm. to go and like, and then now the, the challenge that you have now is to get people to use this thing. Yeah. You have to get them to buy into your platform. We didn't have to do that with smart because it was already there. So we were able to just go, Hey, 
we have sound exposure tools. We have sound level tools. You're already using our stuff. We're adding it to the software. It's a free update. You're not paying extra for it. Mm -hmm. And then, hey, sound exposure is turned on by default now. So it's a little, I'm calling it a tugboat, right? Like yeah. it's not going to change overnight, but we're just building awareness that these tools are out there and that they exist. And we're trying to get people to understand what they mean and how to use and, them. And you're limiting the barrier between somebody who wants to do good and then how can I do good because exactly. I, don't, I don't have the tool or I don't know. And for the people who are listening who are either stage musicians or uh, people who just are interested in the music world, can you explain a little bit, I mean, Rational Acoustics is doing this amazing work with the software and with the hardware of uh, measurement, right? Can you explain a little bit just from like, you know, explain it to a, a fifth grader kind of way of what smart is and like how it plugs into a front of house audio system? Sure. Yeah. I, I like to talk about it in a way that you might think about those, uh, you know, if you go to Harbor Freight to the mm -hmm. tool shop and you get the 101 toolkit. And you're like, this is great. I'm going to put this thing in my car and I'm going to be so prepared. And you might like ever use seven of those things, right? So smart is a, <laughs> is a software platform that has a lot of different measurement tools in it. Um, one of the ones that is most common for live events work is type of measurement that compares the output of the soundboard to a measurement microphone somewhere in the audience. So basically what it's saying is here's how faithfully this mix is being reproduced by the system. And we can take those measurements from different seating sections. And this is how we balance the sound system and make sure that the tonality is consistent and the level is consistent. So when the, the mix engineer stands there and does their mix, they can have confidence that regardless of where somebody's sitting, it's, it's translating the same way. So, so it's comparative measurement. Um, that, that's, that's sort of the meat and potatoes of it. Um, but it does a lot of other things as well. And one of the things that we've really built a lot, uh, you know, more robustness into lately is the, the sound level tool set. So, you know, taking any number of measurement microphones that are calibrated for SPL, you can, you can, I mean, we have people that have, uh, like colleges, they have practice rooms and they've got a mic in each one. So you can look at 16 mics or 32 mics. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're, we can log sound level data and we can characterize it a bunch of different ways and, and see peak and average and over five minute window and 10 minute window and, and different, different weightings and, you know, however you want to characterize that data. Um, because I really believe that, you know, for so long it was, well, I've got this Radio Shack thing and I put a nine volt yeah. battery in it and it was $24 and it's made out of plastic and it's older than me. Um, and that was the state of this. Yep. And I've got a basket of them in my basement because our, one of our questions when we started developing it was, well, how accurate are these? <laughs> let's start with what people are using right now. Let's learn about this tool. Mm -hmm. Let's learn what its limitations are. Um, it may come as a shock to somebody with that $24 tool is not is not super, is not as dependable as you might think, right? So, um, so the fact that it has a screen and you have to say, do I want to see A waiting or C waiting? Yeah. Do I want to see fast or slow? And that's it. Yeah. And those, those don't answer the questions that we want to answer for a live sound event. And so when you go to a computer software, you don't have to pick A waiting or C waiting. You can measure both at once. You don't have to pick fast or slow. You can measure both at once. We can measure over longer periods of time, like a 15 minute average is a very common way to do this for a bunch of reasons. So using a modern computer's power instead of a, you mm -hmm. know, I call it a party favor, you know, they're fun, but they're not right. So, <laughs> they are, yeah. so training people and so they go, which waiting curve should I pick? You don't have to pick. You can, you can do 20 different metrics at once if you want. Right. So training people to think about, if you think about the idea that a measurement is asking a question, 
you can answer different questions now with a different tool set. You, you don't have to think about, do I want to see A weighting or C weighting? Like, say both. Um, and, and what do we learn? The difference between A weighting and C weighting, looking at those two numbers together, that tells us some inf- interesting stuff too, right? So, so the modern tool set enables us to learn more about what's happening with sound at concerts. And, and so now years later, you know, I have hours and hours and hours of log files from these events and we're able to go through those and, analyze them and spot trends and that's when we can answer real questions about you know what what, what typically what are people exposed to mm-hmm. you know you go to an average two-hour show what can you expect um you know in terms of you know what's what what are the peak levels tend to be for those people down in the front i mean we can just answer questions that we didn't know the answers to before now right 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 so and we that's just made a huge thing yeah yeah and and you know as you know better than i do there's a lot of data out there but a lot of it is from audiological circles is from uh, industrial circles, that, that type of thing. There's some information from like JPL, like literally we're going on a rocket ship. And so like, like really, really high SPL mm-hmm. stuff like that. But, but concert sound is still pretty much in its infancy. I mean, Beals at Shea stadium, right. That was like the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Woodstock was the beginning yeah. of it. So it's just not that old yet. And so part of it is we're still innovating. And so just getting data on this is still a new thing. So, so stage one is, is gathering data. For those of us who mix, everyone puts up, a, you know, put up your little spectrum analyzer at front of house. Mm-hmm. You know, you got the uh, on your iPad app or whatever it is. This is something that nobody sets up because they're required to do so by law, but they do it because it makes it helps them. It's more, you know, it gives yeah. them consistency. It helps their mix. I said I want sound level metering to be the same thing. There are situations where you have to set it up by law. That's that's a, a thing. However, I want to create a tool that is so useful to people that they will set it up even when they don't have to. I like that. My whole COVID project was, hey, shows are going to come back. And when they come back, our ears are not, you know, going to be ready for this. (laughs) And the neighbors aren't going to be ready for the noise complaints that they got used to not having for two years. Yeah, yeah. And so let's come up with not only the tool set, but ways to use the tool set for mix engineers that will make them want to set this thing up and will help them deal with when they're at a festival and it has a strict limit. Can your mix still have impact and dynamics and feel big, even though the limit is strict? And like, how do we, how do we work around that? How do we create a mix that is feels loud, but is safe? Um, and so out of those two years of just messing with the different weightings and the measurements and looking at a bunch of data, we came up with this workshop that we do that, that just, you know, I call it how to beat the meter, right? So it's, it's yeah. consciousness of, of, of sound level measurement and what these things mean. They're tricks, they're workflow things, ways to set these meters up, ways to look at them when you're mixing to help your show have dynamics and have a, a, a impact and, and, ha- and feel loud. What, what does loud mean? What is loudness? Like, you know, it's not SPL, right? So let's figure out the difference between SPL and loudness and let's teach people how to get their fingers in that gap and really mm-hmm. exploit that. And, you know, I have to say it was the coolest thing ever for me because after two years of this, you see the sound exposure data and you're like, man, people are getting killed out here. You know, you get, you got a three hour event and people are going home with, you know, like three weeks of sound exposure in an afternoon, like horrifying. Um, so I think we can all acknowledge that we, we mm-hmm. can do better, right?
so I had a friend, uh, she was out doing, she was mixing a bandit, uh, like the Forum or the Greek or one of those out in, out in California, and they've got a notoriously strict policy. And she's like, it's one minute, it's A-weighted, it's 95. She goes, I'm really struggling because I'm like right at the edge and like they keep yelling at me and, and it just sounds tiny. And they go, okay, cool. And like I gave her like 20-minute condensed version on the phone of all this crap that I've been studying for two years um, that had made it into our workshop. And she called me back the next day and she goes, dude, I'm at 91 and it feels massive. Yep. And that's the coolest thing ever because she's happy, the band's happy. You know, everyone got less than half the exposure dose that they yep. would have gotten the night before. Like, that's good for everybody. And it's not hard. You know, you just have to care about it. You just have to go, I want to do this. Um, and so it's definitely, you know, I can tell we're still at the beginning of a journey with this, but it's really been interesting to really see the industry consciousness change about it, you know? I think that's huge. I, it's really optimistic too, because I've been saying like that needs to happen eventually, but it seems like that eventually is now-ish. Um, but I love, I want to go back to something you said. Um, did you say that the title of the of the seminar is literally how to beat the meter? <laughs> it's how I, it's how I describe it to people. Oh, okay. It's called, uh, <laughs> it's SPL applications for front of house engineers is what we call it. Cause um, what I love. Okay. So that's nice. It's official sounding. Uh, you know. How to beat the meter though. Um, what I love about that as, as a person who loves loud concerts and also tells people the risks of that, what you're doing there is you're, you're creating a scenario where in order to beat the meter, you need to learn how to read it. You need to learn how to use it. And in doing so, well, I got you, right? I, I've pulled you into the, the fray of, okay, well, now you care about what the meter says. Right. Well, that, and, and that's the whole thing. I mean, so fundamentally... 10 years ago, if you went, if you went to 50 sound engineers and said, what does the SPL meter do? 50 of them would say, it tells you how loud it is. Right. And we're trying to make that. So the answer is no longer 50 people saying that maybe, maybe it's 30 people that say that now and 20 people say, well, it measures sound level. Yeah. Because the, the very first thing I call it the fork in the road. You ever see the, the Muppet movie where there, there's a big fork in the road, right? So the big fork in the road with this topic is you need to understand before we talk about anything else that loudness is your perception and level is something that we measure with a tool. And so the SPL meter does not tell you how loud it is. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you realize that now you go, well, they're not the same thing. How can I exploit this divide? And so I love to be at shows with friends and I go listen to that and they go, yeah. And I go, it's 91. They're like, what? Like it feels, you know, and I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not a wizard. I just understand how the, how the, how the math works that drives these, these metrics. And I'm also not a, not a fantastic mix engineer. I'm not a mix engineer, right? So I mix, but if you give these tools to someone who is an amazing mix engineer, they can do some mm -hmm. really, really amazing stuff with it. And, uh, I think, you know, there's this venue in my hometown. It's like, I don't know. It's about a thousand seat theater and I mix there sometimes for local events and stuff. And there's this one stagehand who thinks, um, I mean, he used the word warlock, right? Like he goes, your shows, they feel like they feel so big and like, they feel so loud and so powerful, but I can like talk over them. It's amazing. And he doesn't understand anything about mm -hmm. the meters or the weightings. He knows nothing about technically about what's happening. All he knows is it's loud, but it's not loud is the way he describes yeah. it. Right. And so I'm just saying I'm a mediocre mix engineer who understands these tools. So let me help good mix engineers understand these tools. And you can get some really fantastic results. And I can sleep at night knowing that I, I didn't destroy people's hearing. Totally. 
You know? My analogy with that has always been food related because every analogy goes back to food for me. Mm-hmm. When you go to a restaurant and it just tastes amazing, yep. half the time that's because they added all the junk that your body wants, but you're going to have a stomach ache or you're going to, you know, this is really bad for you because of all the extra sugar, all the extra sodium, all the extra butter they added to it, whatever it is that they added to it that like tricked you into thinking it's yummy. Right. Right. Or if you go to a really good meal and it tastes amazing, but you go home thinking, and I feel good mm. after that. The difference is they understood how to make yum without hurting you, right? They yeah. understood the concept yeah. of like how to bring out flavors uh, without necessarily giving you, like we all want an indulgent experience when you go out, right? You want to you want to eat a hamburger. You don't want to eat a quarter of a hamburger and feel like, oh, I'm under my calories or whatever. You want an indulgent experience. So maybe I'm going to take in 200% of my daily, what I would have eaten at home. But you don't want to take in 2,000% right. of your sodium right. or 2,000% right. of your right. calories. And that's unfortunately what we end up doing. To give people that like indulgent concert experience, they end up uh, basically taking a month's worth of sound in two hours It was a really interesting thing for me. I was at this festival, and you know, part of what we do with Rational Acoustics is we, we we consult with festivals about sound level limits and how to meter them and how to enforce them. And a lot of these festivals have agreements with the town that they're held in, where you can't go over the. So we come in and say, okay, well, we'll we'll sort that out for you throughout this festival. And the limit I think was 101 dBA one minute average. And throughout the day, bands come in, you know, the 98, 99, basically what you'd expect for a large festival like that. Mm-hmm. The headliner gets up and they come out of the gates at like 103 and a half. Mm. And of course, management's out there in a minute and they're like, you know, turn down. And, and this, this mix engineer was just, he kept, you know, going for it, going for it. So what happens is their set ends up being 3DB hotter than everything else that had happened so far that day, at least. Yeah. But it sounded tiny. Mm-hmm. I went to the system engineer on that stage and I had him check that the subs were on. Like there was just no, um, it was it was not a balanced listening experience. And so when you understand how that plays into our loudness perception, what was amazing to me is to see the YouTube comments of, of this show. Quiet as a library. Uh, I don't know why they were so much quieter than everybody else. There must have been a problem with the PA mm-hmm. where they turned them down. Like they were objectively higher in level by a significant amount than everyone else. But what what is it that was making the, the listeners say, why were they so quiet? And it's this wonderful textbook example of, Level is not loudness. Oh, that's, you know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't love that that happened, but seeing that happen and having the data from it, like I have a slide of some of the YouTube comments in in my class that we do because it really drives the point home. And then, you know, one of the guys that mixed that day, you know, the 2 p.m. slot, the one that nobody wants at a festival, right? The up and coming act, he comes out and he's at like 92 the whole time. He's like, he's a clean 10 dB under the limit and his show felt enormous. Yeah. And sure enough, when you analyze his log file data, He's doing all of the things that we teach in the workshop to do. So it's there. Awesome. You can see it. You know, it's amazing. And I was just talking to him about that today. So he did a lot of broadcast mixing over COVID. Mm. And when you're mixing for TV, you can't, you can't be at 101 dBA. Yeah. So like, how do you make this sound loud at 84? Right. Mm-hmm. And so he had to figure out other ways other than using sheer SPL to create a loudness perception. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling good about 
the fact that people are thinking about this and they're mm-hmm. acknowledging it and they're working on it. And every time we do the workshop, it's, it's, it sells out. particular meter configuration that I teach in the workshop and I will get these texts from you know sound engineers on tour with big bands of their meter their meter configuration you know they'll go out on the road for six months and I'll, I won't hear from them and then they'll send me a picture and they're using that and, and they're yeah. just like man this is a game changer you know so um that's a really cool feeling because you're like yeah I did, you know I did that but but also like that these people are going out and they're giving thousands of people every night a great experience and they're not hurting them you know yeah. And that's the thing you're kind of, you're, you're, you're influencing. And then what's going to happen is I know the first time that I ever went to a professional big show as I was a active sound engineer, I went to a big show of another group that I wasn't mixing. And I went, Oh my God, this is punchy. This is, this is aggressive, but I don't feel like I'm getting hurt. I, I kept my earplugs in my pocket, which mm. is a rare thing for me. That changed my perspective because even the people who you're not talking to are experiencing that that paradigm shift. They're experiencing this can be different. You, I mean, that's what I mean by like you're really you're really creating a, a safer environment, and it's going to spread like ripples. Yeah, and you know the other thing that's interesting is you know I'm kind of tuned into what the World Health Organization has been doing, like you know the the healthy ears, mm-hmm. healthy ears, whatever they call it, safe listening. Yeah. We've got generations now of kids who have been putting these Apple things, whatever. I don't have any earbuds or whatever. Put them in your ears and just blast yourself for eight hours. And you get on a bus or a plane and you turn it up. You know what I mean? So so that is direct to the end user. Hey, be aware of this. That's not what we're doing here. We're going mm-hmm. to the one person who is this, who's making a decision for 5,000 people or 10,000 people and saying to them, hey, be aware of this. Because, you know, you – it's it's so much more efficient to go to the one person who's in charge of how loud that show is and say, you're in charge of what all these people are about to get exposed to. So let's talk about that. Let's have you understand this. That's awesome. And I do think that there is a two-way street because all of this is happening kind of at the same time that now people come to me and, and they show me their dosimeter on their Apple Watch. Right. And I'm like, well, you know, my gut instinct as an audiologist three years ago was like that that's on that's in your pocket half the time that's down like (laughs) that's not measuring what's happening at your ears but now i see it as like suddenly what goes into your ear canal is something you think about exactly more than once you get damaged you think about it daily or you think about it whenever it reminds you um and you gotta you gotta say that some percentage of that audience at every show whether you're metering it as a sound engineer or not, some percentage of that audience, their wrist is going to buzz at some point exactly. and say, I've reached my daily dose. And then they have to decide, do I stay? Mm-hmm. What What's my action then? Because it right. doesn't tell you what to do. You know, the cat's out of the bag. You've got an arena show. And like you said, there are, there are a thousand Apple Watches in that room. So mm-hmm. we can no longer just pretend, oh, I'm sure it's fine for everybody. Like, even you know, so we're not the only person who's keeping tabs on that now. And I think that's a good thing. 
Um, yeah, you know, I the, agree. the, the, the specifics of the device and its accuracy aside, you know, that's not, that's a completely different conversation, but the awareness and the consciousness of, Hey, this is something I should pay attention to. I mm-hmm. was doing some yard work and I went and got one of my meters and I kind of held it up because I wanted to see what my weed whacker was doing. 103 DBA. Yeah. So like you're going to hit hundred percent NIOSH in the two minutes, three minutes, you know, it's, it's just extreme. Like, so you might do, do yard work and you might run a lawnmower and you might work on your car, run a vacuum, and then you're going to go to a concert and get 2000% NIOSH. You know, we don't know as the people who run this event, we don't know what else happened in your day. So I think the overall awareness of I am just starting to build consciousness now about what I'm exposing myself to is absolutely mm-hmm. a good thing. And it's definitely part of this conversation, you know. Do you have like a personal reason to think about other than the technical reason, other than the, I mean, the obvious of improving the concert from a consistency standpoint, what was that spark that made you go like, okay, well, this also matters for safety. This also matters for exposure. Um, I, I have always been protective of my own hearing mm-hmm. and I don't feel that someone else has the right to damage my hearing. When you go to a dentist, there's a reasonable expectation that they're not going to harm you, yeah. right? And so when you're operating a, a soundboard, like that was it for me, which is, you know, I mean, I when I was growing up, 16, 17, 18, I was working for local production companies. And like anytime someone in the shop would use a power tool, I'd put my earplugs in and they would make fun of me. But it's like, yeah, yeah but I can still hear. So make fun of me all you want. You know what I mean? Like I can hear you making fun of me. So, um, <laughs> so to me, it, it was always there, which is that now when my fingers are on the faders, which doesn't happen all that much these days, um, it's the same thing. I don't have the right to do damage to somebody else. Yeah. You know? Um, and if you were a rigger or a pyro person doing something unsafe, you would be, you're sent home immediately. That doesn't fly now. Um, but you know, audio isn't there yet. And, and, I would like to see more consciousness of going, hey, dude, what you're doing is not responsible. You know, you're, 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 you're putting people at risk here and there's no, it's a concert. Like there's no, you know, like it's, it's not like you got deployed to a war zone or something like this is just, there's no reason that we should be doing people damage when they go out for a fun night on a Friday. So yes, um, I think a, a big factor that we don't talk about is, it is possible for a mix to be dangerous and be totally comfortable. So there mm-hmm. may be nothing just triggering your natural reaction of this might not be safe yeah. because a professional mix engineer's whole job is to make that sound comfortable. Um, so I've been at a show that was 103 DBA, 50 minute average, like it was camping out there and felt like I could take my earplugs out. Because it felt comfortable. And I didn't. But the fact that it feels comfortable means that no one in the audience is going, wow, I should put plugs in. I've also been at shows that are, you know, 87 dBA and just feel really uncomfortable and really harsh and you want to get away from it. So the fact that, again, this divide between what's the objective level and our perceived loudness, I think because of that disconnect, you have people who don't realize that they're being exposed to something dangerous because it doesn't feel dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of this. I also think part of it, like you said, there is the immediacy issue, or I don't care, or the it's worth it because I love Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. And yeah, how many times have you see Paul McCartney in your life? You know what I mean? So like, is that two hours going to be what deafens you? Probably not. But if you do it for a living, 
you're doing it every two hours every night for 40 years absolutely is you know 100 percent You know, it's interesting because like, my audiologist that I had growing up, she was obviously, you know, like like Heather said, there's not that many of you that specialize in this stuff. And so I was like, yeah, I keep, you know, my mixes are low. Like I go, I mix it like 91, 92 usually. And she goes, yeah, it's still way too loud. Like that's not a realistic response. There's yep. no world. And you know what I mean? Like, like we have to be realistic about what's happening here. So if you're telling people that 90 dBA is too loud for a concert, they're just not going to listen to you. Because what they're hearing is, you don't understand what I do. You don't understand what my job is. And I'll be on a plane home because management's going to fire me if I think the show should be at 86 dBA. And it's a rocket. It's just not realistic. Um, Completely. So I think for me, it's just been the perspective of, well, let's let's understand this issue and let's talk about what we can do that's realistic. And like I said, keeping the, the, that ramp up and level towards the front. Let's just reduce that. Let's bring the whole show down by by two or three and make it sound big, you know. Um, maybe let's not be at 106. You know, those things, those outliers, it's going after the outliers and just getting those down. So, so I think sort of being, you know, like, like I told you before we started, my, my mother being a deaf education expert, deafness and hearing loss was just part of my world growing up. Yeah. Cause she would, she was a teacher and so she would go to work and work with people who couldn't hear. And so I knew what a cochlear implant was. I, I knew about sign language. And so, um, that was just part of my awareness, I think. And then if you couple that with growing up, I was into music. So if I've always been conscious of, of my hearing. And so I think for me now being involved with live events, that's just sort of the natural evolution of it, you know? Completely. And I, I, what I found is very consistently, there's some kind of a personal connection there too, which, you know, hopefully everybody sees their own ears as a personal connection. But that kind of brings me to my next question, which is you obviously have a reason from uh-huh. a young age because you're exposed to this concept of hearing loss why do people not think about hearing loss or damage to their ears as an immediate concern well i think there's a i think there's a low-hanging fruit answer and i think there's a real answer and the low-hanging fruit answer is that people say you know that these teenagers they just they don't care because they want to you know they're not thinking about what's going to happen in 40 years and, and that's probably true to some extent for the same reason they drive crazy you know just because you're young and stupid, and I was young and stupid. You know, I loved your point earlier about responsibility, and if I had to paraphrase what you said earlier, it was that uh, the responsibility lies with whoever understands the risk sure. the best. Yeah, uh, I mean, well, we use the phrase informed consent, and that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah I love that because I mean, that's always a big question: is it, is whose responsibility is it? Is it the venue? Is it the crew? Attendees having hearing problems, having lawsuits. But the person who knows the best really has the responsibility to to improve the situation, because in the end, whoever that is, whatever mm-hmm. the role they're play, if it's the audience, if it's the artist, then is might be the person who speaks up and says like we're we're not doing the best that we could be doing here. We don't have to stop the show. Right. We have to improve the show. Yeah, and that's you know, and that's that's who's signing your paycheck. First of all, you know what I mean. Sure. I mean, boy, that's such a complex thing. You know. Mm-hmm. Talking about whether or not you're going to be legally responsible is so far down the wrong path. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like the person who, who they'll run the red light if they think they won't get caught. Don't run the red light. Like, just don't, don't do the, don't just do the right thing. Like, why, you know what I mean? Like, being a professional means operating within the applicable laws and regulations because it's the right thing to do, not because you, you have decided that 
it's fine. And there is tons of advocacy to help our industry. There are avenues there, but just saying, I'm going to do whatever I want. That's not the responsible way to do it. And I think what you guys are doing with with Rational, just to use your analogy, you're not going to drive through a red light because you know that there's a red light. But when I was mixing, I didn't have a red light, right? I had two red lights, right? I had the left and the right meter on my board. Right, or if right. I clip the amp, that was my my indicator that things were too loud. <laughs> you know, oops, I'm clipping the power amp. Right. I didn't have a red light. I didn't have a meter. I didn't have a way of, of knowing. So, like, I probably ran through a million red lights, which, you know, I'll keep myself up at night with my grief of that. But now that we have the red light, now it's just ridiculous to ignore it. I love I love that analogy. Very nice. thing is i'm an audiologist and i don't want people to be told to stop right which is confusing i think we're struggling with the same thing right we're, we're struggling with audiologists are trained 85 db and above is bad there's this line in the sand you cross that line you've created bad there's a number which is time weighted average which is eight hours so 85 over eight hours has a risk at the end of somebody's career of causing hearing damage there's you know that that concept that there's more to that definition than 85 is bad well that's that's such a huge part of the class um is you know i've been to a venue and they said keep it under 95 95 what you didn't give yep. me a waiting you didn't give me a t- i mean there's a is it is it peak c or is it a 50 minute a weighted air i mean there are so many so we talk mm-hmm. about making what we call a complete sentence from a technical mm-hmm. standpoint you that's not a complete sentence I have a tool here that we can meter that and characterize it and display it any way you want, but you have to give me enough specificity in what you're asking for that I can put it on a screen. Yeah. And when I challenged that guy on it, he said, well, what we actually mean is that, you know, when the clock in the concession stand starts vibrating, that's how we know it's too loud. That was their metric. And I said, you can measure that. Like, I can give you a number for that. So so part of it is, and particularly in the U.S., because Europe's better about this, the rules that are on the books are silly. Most of them mean nothing. And I've done some like expert witness work where it says, you know, you're sure you can't exceed 55 dB at the property line, but that doesn't mean anything. Like a, a good lawyer will get that tossed out immediately because it's a meaningless statement. Um, and so I've flown to places with meters and sat on, on roads and, and gathered data and go, look, oh, this bird went by and it, it's triggered it. You know what I mean? Like, so, so that's <laughs> part of this is just getting people to say, and this is important. No one, like, we all agree that we shouldn't hurt people. And we all agree that we don't want to bother our neighbors. Like, so the reasons that we pass these laws are 100% legitimate. And I think everybody agrees on that. We're just saying, if you pass a law poorly, mm-hmm. it doesn't serve the people it was supposed to serve. It frustrates people unnecessarily. Let's just get it right. So what I proposed to this particular company that hired me to have their outdoor event and the city was pushing back, I said, their rule doesn't make sense because it's not based in data. So I said, how about they let you do the event this year? We will. Lo- you're already paying me to be out here and to generate this data. Offer them the data for free. We will give you a copy of this data. So now you know when an event is happening, this is what's going on at the property line. Now you got some data and now you can work on creating a rule that makes sense and is based on the reality of the situation. And the thing is, it, they had to let them have the event because it put them in such a spot because you can't say no to that. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so you want to make it, you just want to make it realistic. And so it's the 85 dB thing. Like no one's going to go to that concert unless I don't know. It's like Nora Jones. Like there, there are acts that are down there, down there, sure, James Taylor. Sure. Right. But, but a lot of them are not. 
So rather than making these sweeping things, that's the real problem. You know, when I tell my family or my friends like, oh, what do you do? I work on, you know, sound exposure stuff, sound level for concerts. They all go, well, well how loud is too loud? And they want a number. They want me to that's just go 100, right? Like they just want me to say yeah. this number and that's just not how it works. And so we have to go, well, it's more about how loud for how long. And, and then um, there is just an immediate amount of education that has to happen for that to be a meaningful statement. And Completely. that's been the speed bump really is, is just, I can't vomit a number at you, you know? And I have this, this visual Im- this image in my head of like two people standing on two completely different Hills with the giant Valley of knowledge in between. And on one side is the, unfortunately the, sa- the audiology people representing the safety people or in, in the story that you just said, the, the township or the, the city ordinance, just whatever, there was a group with good intentions who had one book that they were looking at, one set of knowledge that they're looking at. And on the other side is the music community, the creators, the, the venue, the staff, the crews, they're throwing, we're just throwing rocks at each other, trying to fill up that Valley. And we're not going to fill up that Valley until we can have the same language. till we can look at the same numbers till we can understand what the meter really says. And I think that's, what's so powerful about what you guys are doing and again back to the reason why i invited you today just the way that you particularly michael talk about it brings a humanity to the numbers that i don't know more relatable in a way that i found it very hard for a lot of people to express and that's something that i i really super appreciate well i i mean i appreciate that i think you know i think about i think about being at this venue where the guy comes out and says keep it under 95 and what I can't do is um, I can't try to convince him how qualified I am. Hey, I published six papers on this. Does not work on the concession stand guy. So he doesn't care, yeah. right? All he cares about is not getting in trouble or whatever. I don't, you know, he, he nothing I tell him about my work or, you know, all the research that I've done, none of that's going to move the needle. What I did is I said, hey, uh, yeah, we're all set up to measure it. Let me show you what I've got. And mm-hmm. I put up some meters. And then I turned some house music on in the PA and I said, which one of these do I need to keep under 95? And he said, oh, okay, I see what you mean. So, so how do I get him to understand that there's more to that statement in a way that does not involve challenging his, um, his level of knowledge on it? Because well, people don't and, react well to that, right? Yeah. And what you just did was bridge the gap in a way that 99% of people wouldn't where you're, what you're doing there is you're saying, I recognize the intent of right. what you're saying, right. which is there's a bunch of people here. I've got a job. There's a bunch of people who work here. There's a bunch of people who are buying tickets. Uh, I've been told to ask you to be careful. And you're saying, I acknowledge you. Let's work together on that. Instead of, instead of shouting back and be like, you know, you do your job. I do my job. Right. Um, well, that's, that's the trick right there is how do you defuse that? And so I think sharing the enthusiasm of that is yeah, way yeah, better yeah. than arguing about it because th- he did walk up to me and say something that makes no sense, you know? And so if you think about how like a pilot might respond to someone who just walked up to them and told them this nonsensical rule, like you can only use one wing at a time, like the fuck does that mean? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like it doesn't mean anything. So, so it's the same thing. You have to get over that initial reaction of like, what the heck are you talking about, dude? Like, you have to direct that interaction in a fruitful way. And, and nine times out of 10, they go, Oh, 
Hey, you know, can I get can I get your card? Because like after we'd love for you to come back sometime and talk to us more about this. And then these venues go, can you install a rig for us or do a training? Amazing. Like like people are by and large hungry for information on this. Mm-hmm. They do want to learn about it. They do want to understand it. They really do. It's just that for so long it hasn't been packaged for them in a way that was useful. You go in the AES library, the Audio Engineering Society library, and you look, most of the research on this has happened very recently. And, and, I, and I've worked on some of that, and I'm proud of that. So part of it was there's information out there that wasn't out there before, but a lot mm-hmm. of it also is, is it in a format that is that is digestible to people who aren't audiologists, you know, totally. uh, who make shows for a living and and may not have access to the tools that, that we have access to and may not have any of the, the you know, foundational knowledge that that I have just because I've been studying it for so long, but how do you get that person who's got 20 minutes or a 30 second interaction with a venue manager? How does that become productive and informed? I mean, I think that's really where we've been focusing our efforts educationally, you know, I love that. I had one more kind of silly question that I love to ask uh, everybody. What's your favorite sound? Uh, I would say the the first cheer that the audience does when the show starts. Nice. And why? I that's that's why you do it. You know, like that that excitement. I mean, so part of my job when you when you're saying my job is is for the PA to have uniform coverage. That means yeah. that I'm spending time walking through the audience. I'm not just at mixed position. So mm-hmm. the show starts, I'm walking. And so I see the people with the t-shirts and the signs and the, you know, I just worked for Ghost and they, so they, they wear all the makeup of that the lead singer does. So these people prepare for this for months and they, you know, yeah. and so they're just like, this is for us. It's like, yeah, we did it last night. We're going to put it on a truck tonight. We're going to do it again tomorrow. It's very easy to get into that kind of the pattern of it and mm-hmm. remember that for these people, this is the night. And, and so seeing how the audience reacts when that show starts, like that moment of excitement, you know, it's like, it's so tangible. Um, I cover my ears cause that, you know, I just, we just did a research paper. The audience screaming is actually like pretty bad for your hearing. Um, <laughs> but, but that, that moment where they're like, Oh, it's starting. This is great. Like, um, I love to, you know, if my job is that I have to walk up to the back of the arena anyway, like I'll sit, I'll sit in a chair up there. You know, I got my laptop so I can adjust the system as I, as I move around the place. But I'll sit down and watch the song as a fan and just see yeah. what the experience is like. And I, I want to see the people. So I was training. I was training a young lady. She's actually she's got my spot on the Volbeat tour in Europe right now because um, I didn't go on, on the Europe leg. So if, I know you were looking at our Instagram. That's those are her posts. So she's she's over there now. Um, and so when she came out to shadow me and kind of see how I did it, like halfway through the show, you know, we're, we're in mixed position, and I turn around, and I point all the way up to the back 300 level, you know, these people are 265 feet from the PA and they're going nuts back. I'm like, see that? Like, that's, that's your gig right there. Those people, you know? Um, and so for me, I love walking. It was so funny. The crew, um, they're like, man, you walk more than any systems engineer we've ever seen. Like, I, I love it. I love walking through the crowd and, 
and hearing what the system's doing and all these different seats and seeing the people and um, the enthusiasm, like that's why I do it. So for me, you know, like you don't, you don't become a, a, a stage technician to get rich, right? <laughs> like you just don't, it's just not, it's just not realistic. You're not, it's not going to happen. Um, so the fact that I can like, you know, pay my bills and, and live comfortably and, and do that is amazing. So I, I'm very much into our job is to right. it's providing the audience experience is really what we're doing. Um, and that, that's why we do it. You know, even, even, even those grizzled old, you see the, it's the stereotypical roadie, you know, the old grumpy guy, yeah. like he won't admit it to you, but that's, that's why he's doing it. You know? Oh, I love that. So first of all, great answer. Second off, has anybody ever asked you that question before? No. Isn't that really weird? Yeah. If you think about it, mm-hmm. like how many times have somebody asked you what your favorite color, your favorite food, your favorite uh, place to go, your favorite restaurant? People have asked that question a thousand times and you're a sound engineer and you care about hearing and nobody has ever once sat down and said, what's your favorite sound? It's been, it's been really cool, you know? Um, and it's also kind of funny, like, um, because, because it's a topic that is just starting to be talked about. Um, there are only, I mean, it's the same thing. There, there are probably six of us in the pro audio industry that are like actively doing the research. Like, you know, the, if you go look at the papers, same six or seven names and we've got an email thread, you know, and there are just not that many people who are interested in concert sound Mm -hmm. measurement at, at such a ridiculously nerdy level. Um, and so to me, it's really cool to say, this is something that people didn't know until we researched it and found out, you know, our, we did a paper on uh, audience noise. We had Justin Bieber, one of our, one of our contributors, like was the system engineer for Justin Bieber shows. So we've got all this data. And when you want to talk about screaming audience, that's like, that's the, that's the, the artist right there, you know, for audience noise. And we did a paper on, can we separate that contribution from the exposure data. Can we figure out how much of that energy came from the PA and how much of the energy came from the screaming audience? And the idea was if the audience is what sets the SPL alarm off, the band shouldn't be fined for that. So separating the energy out of the, out of the long-term average measurement. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, if we're separating it out, then doesn't that mean we can do the exposure separately too? Now from, from a point of hearing damage, it's all going to damage you, but being able to actually quantify how much of this comes from people screaming, um, no one's, as far as I know, done any work on that yet. So for me, as someone who grew up like reading books and trying to like learn stuff from books and this idea of like, oh, there's so much knowledge out there and I'll never know all of it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So to be able to, to like find one brick in that wall and just push it a little bit further, you know, and say, we know more stuff now and I helped like – that's a really interesting and cool feeling. And I, it's not something that when I signed up for music school when I was 18, I thought I was going to be doing that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, I don't want to put too fine of a point on it because you are, the work that you do to make a band sound great is important work. And then the work that you do to make a band sound great consistently in every seat is important work. And then the work that you do to make sure that when people leave there, they haven't damaged their lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's, yeah. you know what I mean? That's important work. It's each, each one of those is important work. And I think that's the, that's the bridge that we're trying to build between the two communities. It's not just about one thing. It's not just about ignoring one for the benefit of the other. It's awesome. I mean, I, I just want to close and just say like, this is, this has been great. This is exactly why I wanted to ask you on because you, you are so thoughtful and appreciative of people's ears and pre- people's care while they're there for fun night and you're, you're caring about both sides of that. And, and I just really appreciate that. So thank you. Well, Thanks for your time. Thank you really. for having me. This has been a blast. I really appreciate it. Talking Ears is a production of Earmark Hearing Conservation. You can reach us by email at talkingears at earmarkhc.com. We would love to hear your thoughts about this episode and hearing wellness in general. Theme music was by Scott Hallam. You can find more of his music at audiodowsing.com. Additional production and editing assistance by Juan Vasquez and Mary Kim. Thanks for listening.